Welcome to Ben Navarra's podcast with your host, Ben Navarra's. Rusty. So, um, tell me more about why do you choose to, to dig your own and not pay somebody to do it? Uh, because I'm cheap. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I feel like I can do just about anything that doesn't involve plumbing. Um, moderate electricity, but plumbing and electricity, otherwise building a fence, <clears throat> manual labor kind of things. Um, I like mowing my yard. Um, it's brainless. <laughs> it helps me unwind, you know? So it's just like part of my exercise routine. When did you start learning? Was it like a requirement when you were growing up or just start? No, my dad wasn't very handy at all. And so um, I kind of vowed to figure things out myself. You know, YouTube is a wonderful thing. Um, I watch a lot of these videos just figuring out how to do stuff. It was, so it wasn't until later in life, not. Yeah, but I mean, I've always kind of um, been willing to tackle stuff. So that I don't have to uh, pay somebody else to do it. There are limitations, obviously. Um, you know, I'm not an expert when it comes to, you know, like I said, electricity, plumbing, those kind of things. But if it's something that I can possibly do, you know, on my own, I'm going to not pay for it. Damn. So. That's pretty, I mean, that's, I feel like a, a dying art, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of ways. I think, at least for the DIY projects are definitely a thing, right? Right. But I, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather outsource it all day. Well, a lot of times I probably should outsource it because it's, you know, the time it takes after eight trips to Lowe's and, you know, getting the right spot yep. or getting the right parts. It's uh, most of the time I, my wife says that I'm handy, but the reality is she says, you're the most stubborn person when it comes to once you start something, you're going to figure it out. So, if I need to repair the wash machine, get it fixed, you know, I'll do, I'm going to figure out a way, as opposed to calling somebody. And then there's some things that, you know, the refrigerator, I probably have to call somebody, because <laughs> I've had issues with that before, and just, you know, after trying it four, five, six times, you just finally say, I ah, forget it, call somebody. Yeah, I, I think that for the sake of the time, I mean, you know, you're why have you have you always been stubborn or was it? I don't know, stubborn, um, driven, kind of uh, relentless, you know. I mean, I always push myself. You see uh, me in the gym, always. I mean, always. I always try to outdo myself from previous day, doesn't always happen. I mean, now I'm 54, there's a lot of things weight wise I can't do anymore. Um, but it's probably a result of what I could do at the time. You know, I, I wanted to play college football and, you know, I'm five foot nine and not very big and really slow. <laughs> so the way I could, uh, try to become the best football player I could in high school and I was going to, you know, all district and all area and the captain of the team and, all those things just because of my work ethic. And, you know, I, there was a lot of guys who were much bigger than me, 
but nobody in my high school was stronger than me. And, you know, we weren't very smart back then. Our weight strength and conditioning coaches weren't like you guys are now. So they just had us doing bench press and squats. That's pretty much it. Bench press and squats. That's it? Yeah. It was what, what we worked on. We did some other things. But that was the <clears throat> that was the true definition of strength. That's kind of in, insane to think about. Well, it is, and my shoulders are all messed up now because how much I bench press. And how so, much, how much were you benching? I in high school, you know, of course, I was a little cheap because basically I, you kind of threw your hips off the bench, you know. So, um, but I got to four hundred pounds. Damn, that's a and fat so, bench. It was there's a lot of weight on there. Yeah. I can't even imagine anymore because, like I said, my shoulders are so uh, messed up, and I don't want to have a surgery, even though the people have said I'm supposed to have. You know, they've recommended it before, but uh, I just keep pressing on, and and uh, so I I can do some chest work still, but it's really light. I I saw you make a transition from doing more weights when I first started to, I first started seeing you to doing a lot of, a lot of cardio, like on that. The stair mill, I have a love. Stairmaster <clears throat> more than anybody I've ever seen in my life, dude. It is insane. Yeah, I'm up to at least, well, I do it pretty much every day. I mean, I didn't do it yesterday because I mowed my yard and I got a lot of steps in <laughs> over an acre yard. And so, um, I purposely don't have a ride in lawnmower because it's part of my exercise, right? Nice. So, <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah, I do a lot of cardio. I like challenging myself, but I'm trying to get back to where I was <laughs> last year. I kind of got out of the habit, but I work out twice a day. That's that's when I feel the best. So, I'll do cardio in the morning. I'll do a short weight exercise after work. I feel like it's hard. Is it hard to keep that twice a day even to – was it easier back when or is it easier now? Uh, it's easier now because two of my kids are out of the house and graduated and my oldest is a senior in high school. So we don't have the same number of activities. Um, you know, I, I was very involved – in my son's athletic career early on, coaching Little League Baseball, basketball, I coached both my daughters in basketball, you know, coached softball for my daughters. And those are things that ate up a lot of time. So it's easier for me now um, at this stage in my life to devote more time to working out. And it's not because I'm really love to work out, but I hate not working out. If I don't know if it makes any sense. Oh, for sure. I don't feel like I've accomplished what I can do. And, you know, I'll get on Stairmaster and I'll plug in 150 floors and I'll go. And, you know, the, I try not to ever use my hands on the sides. And because that's two or three times the, the workout. I see people in the gym sometimes and they're like leaning over on that stair mill. Their whole body weight is yeah. on their arms. And so they're getting very little of the real benefit. So, um, I do about 150 a day, except on nine 11. And then I do two twenty cause that's both towers were, you know, two 110 floors each. So it's kind of my tribute. I've kept it up. 
been doing that since basically 2002. Damn. <laughs> it's just, you know, <clears throat> I'm not wearing any fire, you know, equipment, but out of respect to those people who, you know, were in this heavy equipment and they had to go up these stairs and, you know, rescue people. And then a lot of them lost their life and... So I do that is my own personal tribute. You know, a lot of people say stuff on, you know, never forget on social media. Well, yeah, I, I never want to forget that. Um, and that's uh, kind of my little personal tribute. The discipline and commitment and the respect. I think those three things that that shows is... Like to do that for that long, it's something that you don't ever really, you don't need to do it. No, no but here's the deal. Um, I think people, they say never forget, but they don't really mean it. I think our country has forgotten. I think uh, after 9-11, there was so much patriotism and we were really unified. And <clears throat> it's not to say that we should be anti-Muslim or any of that. No, that's not what I'm saying. But we should be more unified in our outlook, more proud of our country, more proud of the people who are willing to sacrifice their lives for us. And, you know, it wasn't just 9-11. It was after 9-11. All those people who joined the military and, um, you know, fought um, because what happened, you know, the, the terrorists attacking the United States hasn't happened since. Um, knock on wood, but, uh, that's not because accident, we had a lot of people in the military just getting over there and, um, willing to die for, for the American way. Right. Um, because that was really what it was all about. Those terrorists were like, they attacked symbols of our democracy. Right. I mean, the financial world in New York city, the Pentagon, I mean, Washington, D.C., and if it wouldn't have been for those people on the plane, they probably would have hit the White, White House, too. The ones who took over and stormed the the, uh, the cockpit. And so I've always been, you know, those people are true heroes in my mind. It's not, you know, LeBron James and or who Tom Brady. I mean, they're great athletes, but they're not heroes to me, you know. Those people who, ordinary people who called their wives and said, listen, I ain't ever coming home again, but I got to go do this. <laughs> That's a hero, you know? It gives me chills a little bit mm -hmm. thinking about that. Can't imagine making that call. No, but I mean, it had to, it started, our, our war on terror started in that airplane, you know, because they were getting notifications that, oh, two have hit the World Trade Center, one's hit the Pentagon, you know, and we're going back to Washington. So it's either up to the, us or, you know, there's a, one of the guys in there and um, had this saying that I still love. It's like, let's roll and take action. Because anytime <laughs> you can, activity beats inactivity, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you fail as long as you're trying, right? So that, to me, was the start of the war on terror in that plane. And then, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Navy SEALs, right? I mean, oh, I've, yeah. I've read so much about Navy SEALs. I thank God 
that I'm not a Navy SEAL, but because I don't know if I'd still be here, right? I mean, they put their lives on the line all the time. But I do think had I not wanted to be a college football player so badly and tried to walk on at Sam Houston State, I would have been in the military. Um, whether that be the Navy or the Air Force, I'm not sure, because I also had a strong desire to fly. And my grandfather had been a very decorated pilot in World War II. My uncle was a pilot, flew B-52s, and I really at one t- time wanted to be a pilot. Um, and <laughs> my prior to my, ju- or my senior year in high school, which would have been 1986-87, there was a movie that came out that really geared me up. It was Top Gun, the original Top Gun. Never seen it. Oh, you try to see it, man. <laughs> so I was, you know, hook, line, sinker. Maybe fortunately, because my life would have been so different, um, I couldn't – I wasn't very good at standardized tests. So I took the SAT over and over and over again because you needed a congressional nomination to get – into the Air Force Academy. So they had a good football team, the Air Force Academy, and they were interested in me. Um, but, I mean, they weren't going to give me, like, congressional nomination. I wasn't that good in high school because, I mean, still. Five, nine. And- five, nine, and <laughs> not very fast. But. Support for Ben Thinking is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code THINKING at manscaped.com if my math is correct that's about 16 million balls i got my lawnmower and weed whacker recently and i immediately put the weed whacker inside of my nostrils no nicks no snags and i have never been able to smell things as good as after i used the crop the weed whacker The Crop Preserver makes my balls smell nice every single day that I'm in the gym. And, of course, we love that. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THINKING at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THINKING. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. You know, uh, I just couldn't get it. So I had, I was like president of the student body, captain of the football team, had everything else grade point average wise to compete with these other people in Fort Worth who were trying to get this congressional nomination. But man, I, I couldn't take the SAT. I mean, I took it like eight times and I never got over like 920 or something like that. Whereas the guys I was competing against scoring 1500s and 1550s, like the perfect score was 1600 at that time. I don't Damn. know what it is now, but right. I mean, these guys were almost perfect. And there was just like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. You have someone 6'2 hitting 1500 on the. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I got offered an opportunity 
to go to the Air Force Academy prep school, which is basically a year, and then you can get into the Air Force Academy. And they had their prep uh, – basically they had their own JV football team at the prep school. And I don't know who they played, but I was just like, man, do I really want to just waste a year of my life just to get in? So at that time, Sam Houston State had just built a brand-new football stadium. And I had a buddy – who went down there and walked on. And he said, man, you ought to come down here and walk on. So I did. And it took me about <laughs> – probably it took me a couple hours, but I hung on for a couple of weeks, you know, because I was I wanted to see if I could play. Yeah. And while I was a very good high school football player, the speed of the game was night and day compared to – Keep in mind, this is 1987, right? So offensive football was so different. You know, we would play against schools who we would say they threw the ball a lot and they'd throw 12 times a game, right? That was a team <laughs> that threw the ball a lot. So we were pl- playing against wishbone teams and, you know, split T teams and guys, teams that were just grinded out. And so I could play safety, right? I didn't have to run a 4-5. And I always tell people my best 40 – was probably a 4-8 downhill with wind at my back, right? <laughs> but I claim 4-8 always, right? <laughs> That's the one. So I got to Sam Houston, and I couldn't cover those guys. Just couldn't do it. So I remember after, you know, they were real impressed with when I got there the first day and in the weight room. and like, God, who is this kid? You know, he's like, strong. And then I got out in the field, and they are like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so I'll, I'll never forget – I went to my position coach, right, and uh, like a couple weeks into it, and I was really trying to – I was moving from like a free safety to a strong safety kind of hybrid linebacker, closer covering tight ends, and I still couldn't do that. Uh, They were so much bigger than me. And so I just remember telling my coach, listen, coach, thank you for the opportunity, um, but I don't think I belong out here, and I'm going to go ahead and hang it up. And – he looked at me, he smiled and said, good decision, <laughs> stay in school. <laughs> so it was a really nice way of saying you're making the right call because you don't belong out here. I was either going to have to tell you that or you're going to have to tell me that. So I'm glad I don't have to tell you that because I don't want to insult you because you got a big heart and you're out here and you're trying. It's one of the best things I ever did, though, because I never had to wonder. Because that was my goal all life, right? Uh-huh. Play college football. Play college football. That's all I wanted to do growing up. <clears throat> so everything weight-wise, every workout was all about one day, you know, play college football. So when I realized I didn't belong out there, I had no regrets. Because, like I said, activity always beats inactivity. So had I not tried out, I would have always been wondering, could I play? Well, I've never had to wonder that because I couldn't. It was it was obvious you to everybody, out. including myself. And I'd run through a brick wall, <laughs> hit somebody, but I, mean, I just couldn't do it. And so then, at that point, what did you? What what, what were you? What, what did you decide to major in? And then is that what you finished with once you decided that? No, <clears throat> after I quit the football team, I was you know freshman year, early. You know, my freshman first semester of school, 
I was like, well, I'm not going to play football here, which is what I wanted to do. So how do I stay close to the football team without being a part of it? And so I walked to the journalism department and I said, uh, hey, and I walked in the newsroom first time. I said, hey, I think I want to write sports. And I'd never written a journalism story in my life, right? Never. And they go, great, we just lost our sports editor. Would you like to be the sports editor? And I'm like, sure. That's beautiful. So, so instead of saying, wait, I, I've never done it, I was like, yeah, absolutely. And they go, great, there's a basketball game. Um, I guess it was later in the semester when I finally did it because basketball was just starting off. So this is probably closer to late October, November. And uh, they go, great, there's a basketball game Saturday night. Write, write a story and then be here, you know, Monday to lay out the paper. So I'm like, okay, great. So I went home or I went back to my dorm and I called my uncle who was um, with Associated Press all of his life. He had, he had amazing stories. Like he had this whole photo wall in his house, like all these different little photos of him at various events. The one that was most fascinating to me was my uncle as a very young man in 1963. He's with five other guys, right? And they're in Dallas, and they're carrying a coffin, right? And so I ask him, what is this? And he goes, well, that was November 1963, and it was following the JFK assassination and following the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald. And so... Lee Harvey Oswald was so despised after killing JFK, or allegedly, I mean, (laughs) who knows, uh, that nobody, they didn't have enough people in Dallas who would even touch his body. So the reporters covering the story had to put Lee Harvey Oswald's body in the ground. And that was my uncle. Damn. So I had these cool cool stories. And I thought, journalism? So I called my uncle and said, hey, listen. I think I'm a major in journalism, and I've got an assignment here, and I've never written a story. <laughs> so he goes, well, <laughs> go get the Houston Post, go get the Houston Chronicle, and read their stories on the Rockets game, okay? And then just kind of apply <clears throat> the, the different names, obviously Sam Houston State versus the NBA teams, and just do it. And so – I was so nervous, but that's how I got started. And, you know, I majored in journalism. Uh, first couple jobs out of school were journalism. What were they? I was the I was a sports writer for the Galveston Daily News for, oh, uh, <clears throat> this was 1990 when I got hired. And I was there until late 92. So I went from sports editor, or sports writer to sports editor. And then I went to Four Star Telegram and stayed there a little bit. <clears throat> My hours were awful. You know, I'd go in at 3 o'clock. You know, I'd get off at 1230 at night. And so my wife at the time, we were very early in our marriage, and she was working a normal uh, hours, you know, like 8 to 5. And because so many sports happened on the weekends, my off days were typically like – Tuesday and Wednesday. <clears throat> so I figured, hey, it's either you become a sports writer, you stick with it, or you put your focus on your marriage and you find a, 
normal job. So it was either sports riding or a marriage. I picked my marriage. And so we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. We got married in 1993. It's uh, August of 2023. It'll be 30 years. So Congratulations. Made the right choice. Yeah. And then, so then if not sports writer, then what, do you, what are you doing? Well, I went into PR. Um, and then I had several jobs bouncing around. Nothing that I really liked. And then my first boss in Galveston had started a magazine at AM, the 12th Man Foundation called 12th Man Magazine. So in 1998, um, I was hired as the co-editor of 12th Man Magazine. So that's what brought us down here to College Station because I had been doing freelance for him <clears throat> even while I was doing PR. And so they knew me, um, and then that evolved into kind of fundraising with our former athletes and really getting to know all the donors uh, the 12th Man Foundation, and working closely with our donor, doing profiles on them and so forth in the magazine, and getting to know our our athletes and doing feature stories on them, and so that just led me. I was I was there at the 12th Man Foundation for 16 years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But there's so many politics in the university setting, and I just I just wondered if that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. About that time. I see an opening on LinkedIn for the director of membership and communications at Miramont Country Club. And I started thinking, well, that's probably going after the same people that you know in the 12 Man Foundation because you're looking for donations from people who have disposable income and, you know, really committed and, and wealthy for the most part and successful. And that's still the kind of folks that I'm looking to, you know, generate memberships from. So the first night that I started, or the first weekend fall, I started, started in 2014 at 12th Man Foundation. And the general manager at the time, I was his first hire. Started in Miramont in 2014? Yeah. Okay. So started 1998, 12th Man Foundation, went over to Miramont 2014. So I remember the general manager saying, Hey, it's first Friday before football game. Once you stick around the restaurant, I'll introduce you to some of our members. So it was a crowded restaurant in there. Never forget that because I introduced him to most of our members because he was <laughs> relatively new too. And I knew 95% of those people anyway from being at the 12th Mount Foundation for Damn, 16 that's years. Crazy. So it was 2014, 2015 was really a time when the oil and gas industry w w peaked. You know, the oil and gas industry is always going to go up. It's always going to come down. I mean, that's just historically, right? So it shot up, which is bad for gas prices for everybody driving, right? But it's really good for those people in the oil and gas industry. So they had a lot more. So I just remember calling all these friends of mine from the 12th Man Foundation. It wasn't like a cold call, right? It's like, hey, you know, it's Rusty Burson. Now I'm over Miramont. Hey, we got this membership here. I know you play golf, or I know your kids are coming to school next year at AM. They could really, you could stay here with it. So it was just, you know, low hanging fruit. And so that's when, you know, I started really making a name over there. And they had never had somebody in that membership position 
who was committed to staying in the community. It would always been some, you know, somebody who was just committed to being in the club industry, and they were using Bryan College Station as a stepping stone because if you're mid twenties, um, this can be, and you're single, this can be a difficult community. Community, right? I mean, yourself. <laughs> so there's just it's college students, but then once those college students graduate, and a lot of them move away, so they didn't want to stay here long term. Well, this is my home. I'm not going anywhere. So we've lived here again since 1998. So it's a beautiful place. Oh, I mean, it's wonderful. I love this town. It's the people you meet that are you never know that are, you're walking next to the HB with. That's just um, just good people. Even just in like, in passing, just saying hi to somebody. The the the, the generosity that people provide in this town or the the, the the that southern hospitality is real yeah it's it's a great combination because it's southern hospitality but it's also aggies and you know you think back to when a <clears throat> was an all-male all-military school and i don't know there's no way in the world i would have come here <laughs> back then right yeah gone to AM. all-male <coughs> all-military but it was a small group you know, eight, 10,000 students. And the reality is they knew they were going into the military after school. And so in the military, you're trained to trust one another. I mean, because you could be in a foxhole with that person, right? So they got to watch your back. You got to watch their back. So that camaraderie at A&M generated this welcoming, um, open uh, I guess across campus, just this this feel that you know you you watched after your 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 neighbor and and you never stole from those people because you trusted them and they trusted you and so it was so hospitable. That's why A and M I think has always been one of the friendliest campuses and if not the friendliest campus in the country is because. They did those things. They looked you in the eye and they said howdy, and that's going back all the way to. All male military, where they had, you know, they all ate together, they all trained together, and so even now, when it's seventy thousand students, it's different, right? Because social media and these phones and everybody's walking around with earplugs and all that stuff, so it's different. But it's still very opening, hospitable, welcoming vibe to it, and we teach those folks. I say we because I've worked at AM so so long that have covered AM, been so close to AM. I, I believe Maroon, even though I'm the only one in the family without a ring, right? So um, but I still say we out of habit. Yeah. Um so I just think that uh it's the best of both worlds because it's southern hospitality and it's that, you know, tradition of Aggies being open and welcoming. So that's that's what makes this community something really special and how you I mean you've stayed involved with the community was that the focus when you you came into the miramont position or were you are because you were already here for so long you just like it was an easy transition and and like i'm already gonna i'm already involved in the community because of the the events that were being set up for you or were you actively pushing like programs or like developing programs to be involved in the community um you know, I think it's probably a mix. I think that a lot more people uh, know me because 
I had my picture in that magazine <laughs> for so long, and I've done, you know, a lot of different media kind of things. And so <clears throat> when I was no longer, well, when I was on the 12th Man Foundation, I always wanted to write a book, and uh, I got to be really close with, with the athletes at A&M. And I told that when, I said, you know, you're not, once you get out of here, we ought to write a book. And he's like, ah, no one wants to read my story. Sorry about that. No, uh, I said, Dad, everybody would love to read your story. I mean, you're the only one in the family that was born in the United States. All your siblings are like tiny. And you were born in Arkansas refugee camp. And your mother was given supplements, prenatal supplements. Um, and none of your other siblings were. And you were given you know, formula and other, your other siblings are. Yeah, an opportunity just, that, that nobody else had. Right. And, you know, it's just an amazing Christian story because they were initially sponsored by a church in Michigan, and that story is just so powerful. Well, I, I approached some publishers about that, and that wasn't as big a star in the NFL as the big publishers wanted. So I went to the a Press and say, would you be interested in this? And I said, yeah, we'd love to do it, but we need you, if you want to write a book, can you write this Reveille book first? And so they had this anniversary thing, and I can't remember, it was like their 200th publication or something like that. So they wanted to be something about A&M traditions. <clears throat> and so my wife and I did the Reveille book in three months and because <laughs> we had a really tight deadline. And Damn, so fast. Well, it was fast. She did all the research and I did all the writing and it was a fun book. Um, and so I did that book wow. and then, then I did the, the that book and the Dat book, D A T? Yeah. What, what's his last name? Dat. Win. Dat Win. Yeah. N G U Y E N, which is just pretty much as common as Smith is in America yeah. to the Vietnamese culture. So he was the first Vietnamese player to ever make it in the NFL. Wow. And so. Did that, that led into some other books, and so the fact that I've done all these books, up to 23 now, uh, written 23 books. Hot damn. And so, um, it's just kept my name out there, so this community has, uh, what I love about this community is I almost never go anywhere where I don't know at least somebody. <laughs> you know, it's a grocery store, it'd be very rare to go in the grocery store and not know somebody. At least one person, you know, it's just it's just because I've been here since 1998, yeah. and uh, you know, I love going on campus and um, I love going to basketball games. And you know, when I at halftime basketball games, I always go down and you know see all the 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 donors of 12 Man Foundation and the members of Miramont. And so, you know, probably shake. I don't know. At a basketball game, probably shake 100, 150 hands. You know, it's just like um, – it's that's the thing that I love about this community, which that's is probably the reason I would never leave because I do know so many people. And it takes a village, right, to raise kids. And so I've always had a comfort level that even if I didn't see my kids, somebody else who knows me – would know my kids and say, you know, hey, what's up with your – I saw your son doing this or I saw your daughter this, just thought you would all know. So that's part of the things that helped, you know, my wife and I contribute or have stayed here. We never want to leave. And so it's just, you know, now 
two kids out of the house, a third one about to go to college. And so, um, it's been, it's been a great community for us. And you also have the, a pub, a public, you have a publication company, the, the entrepreneurial spirit of Aggieland. Can you tell me a little bit more about where that started? Yeah. So writing all these sports books, I, um, I always kind of wanted to take a different venture and I always thought <clears throat> working at 12 man foundation, we'd get these checks in the mail, right? <laughs> I mean, six figures, seven figures, even like for, from the very wealthy donors that were donating to a capital campaign or getting their season tickets with the donations. And so student workers would always open the mail and they'd see these checks you know, six figures, seven figures, and they would always be like, man, how lucky is this guy to be able to do that? Well, having known the background, because I interviewed a lot of these donors, right? And we'd done stories in the magazine about their generosity. And so I knew the stories that about Artie McFerrin and Alan Roberts and all these very, very successful people who have their names on buildings and so forth. But it wasn't that they inherited money. They made it. They're all self-made. And they've got amazing stories. And I was like, man, maybe that's the book. And so um, at the same time, I picked up uh, the battalion, the campus newspaper, and I was reading about this new organization called Startup Aggieland. And basically, it's a business incubator. So if you as a student had a business idea, you go to Startup Aggieland, they'd help you write a business proposal. They would give you office space. They would really help you kind of iron out, you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's and get your ducks in a row. And so they they were starting businesses with these these students. So I went over to them and said, listen, here's my idea. I am going to write this book, 12 Entrepreneurs, and I'm going to publish it myself. I'm going to self-publish it, and I'm going to give you Startup Aggieland all the proceeds from every sale. And they were like, okay, what's the catch? I said, no, there's no catch. I just want you to help me promote the book, market the book. So they were like, yeah, okay, awesome. So I went to these entrepreneurs and said, hey, listen, um, I want to tell your story. And I would ask you to pay me to be a part of this. As you're hiring me to write your story. And... It's a write-off if you write it from your business because it's talking about your business. And so I it didn't ask for a lot just to make my time worthwhile, right? And so it was like a drop in the bucket to most of these people, what I was asking for. And um, so they paid me to write the story, and it was good enough for my time and then helped me you know, publish the book, pay, pay to publish the book. And then the book came out, and I was overwhelmed with the response. And it's not the response that I thought would be overwhelming because I thought the students would read the story and be like, oh, man, this is incredible. And they did. But the really cool thing was the response from <clears throat> the adult children of the people in the book. So right before the book came out, Artie McFerrin was one of these stories, and he started a specialty chemicals company that in the oil and gas business, and he became a multi, multi-millionaire. Um, it was an amazing story about self-made. And um, he passed away from cancer right before the book came out. 
And his when it was published, his wife invited Vanessa and I, my wife, to their suite. And both their son and their daughter, adult son and daughter with children of their own, were in the suite. And they just came over to me, and the daughter was practically in tears. And she said, I'm so glad you got my dad to do that because now my kids can read the story of their grandfather and their kids can read the story of their great-grandfather. And it's really part of your legacy that you're sharing with. And so I don't know if you even thought how much this would mean to us. And I'm like, wow. And then the next time I went to a tailgate, went over to Alan Roberts's tailgate, and both of his daughters were like, man, we're so glad you got our parents to do this because they don't talk about the struggles. They don't talk about what they went through. You know, and Alan Roberts built a just an unbelievable empire in uh, the pipeline industry. He started as an accountant, and he majored in accounting. He got into accounting, and he hated accounting, you know? And so he just did exactly the opposite of what his father said. His father was like, he was in the pipeline business and construction, and Alan started his pipeline business out of a back of his truck, you know, a used truck. And he would go from, you know, company to company with a box of donuts because he figured out if he went to the receptionist and gave her a box of donuts, she would probably go find the owner of the company. If he didn't, they'd, look, they'd just run him off. So just like little stories like that. But um, so I did that startup Aggieland or the entrepreneurial spirit of Aggieland was the name of the book. Why didn't you take any of the profits? Because uh, I wanted Startup Aggieland to benefit and help me promote it. So I didn't need the profits because I had made the money I needed to uh, for my yeah. time. Yeah, I wasn't trying to get rich here. I was just trying to make it worth my while, right? And so um, that led to a second version of the Entrepreneur Spirit of Aggieland. And then I did one at Sam Houston because obviously that's where I went to school and graduated from. And I've got one coming out on Baylor, and I'm working on my third at AM, but this is a totally different thing. It's not so much entrepreneurs, it's people, a combination of entrepreneurs and people in the business world who've risen to become CEOs of companies and so forth. So um, it's something that I love doing because I get to sit down. And listen to these very, very successful people. And they all got different stories, but the principles are always the same. I mean, never changes. There's no shortcut to success. There's no overnight successes. It's sacrifice, 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 trial and error. It's never losing hope. It's like, you know, never accepting the rejections. You just keep on piling through. It's like the key to sales, right, is not the yeses, it's being able to handle the rejections over and over and over again, and the belief that eventually you're going to get a yes, but you're going to have to go through five, six, ten no's to get the yes. It's a numbers game, and it's so easy to get demoralized when you get ten no's in a row, right? But you you don't stop. It's like there's you, someone out there that's going to say yes. You got to believe that. If the product is worth it, whether you're selling lumber like my son or whether you're selling an idea 
like this book concept, you know, it's you just have to keep plugging through, right? I mean, it's just the numbers thing. And so it's hard to say, heck yeah, I just got another rejection. But we should if you're in sales because you know that it's like when I'm selling memberships. You know, I got a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of money to ask for somebody to become a member. If they say no, I'm like, well, just plug on through. And then, because you know somebody's eventually going to say yes, because it's a great club. It's great amenities. And there's lots of, you know, and sometimes it's just not the right timing. So you kind of have to take it out of the, they're not saying no to me. They're saying no to the opportunity at this time. And then I tell you, I'd never give up on somebody either. I've worked there since 2014. And we had a member who just became a member. And I've been working on him since 2014. And he never, he never said no. So I, I always stayed in contact with him, right? So that's, that's my whole strategy. Like, hey, listen, you're saying no now. That's fine. Time is not right. But unless they tell me don't contact me again, which I don't think anybody's ever said uh, about Miramont, they, you know, I just keep on contacting them. If you tour the place and you, you're like, <laughs> that's what I try. Man, <laughs> that's what I try to get people to do because you know, a lot of times there'll be men out there like, yeah, I'm thinking about um, Miramont. And I said, well, are you married? And uh, like, yeah, but my wife's not coming because I'd like to take a tour. I was like, okay, well that's fine. You can take a tour, but you're gonna have to come back with your wife because. You experience it, you sit down, have lunch, you get this tour of this 93,000 square foot amazing clubhouse, and it's hard to say no to that, right? And so... It is the highest tier of, like, professionalism, cleanliness, like... Yeah. It is a a standard above others, mm-hmm. and, and it's 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 something that can be in, expected at... Other places, like every if everyone held themselves to this standard, it, it can look like a podcast, it can look like a book, it can look like a, a taqueria. If you're held to this standard, then no, like it's hard to say no. Yeah, make it hard for people to say no. Absolutely. And we were re- <clears throat> recently we were ranked as the number six clubhouse in the country. So you think about that in the country, in Bryan College Station, and so it's really great for me. To work for the Adam family, um, I've always asked, I've always, I've always wanted to write a book on Mr. Adam, and he's a very private person, so I'm probably not going to get that opportunity. But he's been an amazing businessman, absolutely amazing, timing incredible. You know, he started off selling insurance, and then he got into cable TV very early on, when a lot of people weren't even familiar with cable TV. Then he got out of cable TV at the right time. And then so in the mid-80s, all the oil and gas, we we always talk about up and down oil and gas, right? Well, the gas went way down in Texas in the mid-80s. And it affected everybody, the domino effect, right? And so the, the running joke at the time was the most engineers, the employer who has the most engineers working for him right now is Safeway. At the grocery store, you know, because so many people were out of jobs. Well, banks start failing. 
and Mr. Adam had the money, the cash from his selling selling his you know um, cable companies that he could buy up these banks. And it was just he's had the minus touch everywhere. Incredible business person, and uh, it's an honor to work for that family. And that's the only reason Miramont's there is because of his incredible amount of success and his adult daughter, Stephanie Malchak's kind of my direct boss. She's really oversees the day-to-day operations and um, that family's just been fantastic to work for. There's no politics over there. It's like you work for the family and they expect you to do your job and they expect Miramont to have very high standard and that's what we're responsible for living up to because Mr. Adam, you know, is he has the best of everything too, but it's all self he's all self-made, you know. It's not there's nothing to him that was he didn't earn. And so working for people like that is it's it's inspiring to me. It is extremely inspiring to see it and then to talk to those people and you've had the opportunity to be around them. Oh yeah. All your like not maybe not all your life, but most of your professional career. Yeah, it's very similar, you know, because a lot of those people at the 12th Man Foundation have very similar stories. Maybe not to the extent, Mr. Adam, but so many of those people are self-made. And just, how can you not, I, I hate it when society, like, there's this feeling now, you see, like, people resent wealthy people. Like, there's a whole movement. It's, a, it's the anti-capitalist movement. It drives me crazy. Um, because when you look at these people and what they've earned and how they've earned it, how can you not respect somebody who's done that and made the right decisions? And, you know, just, and I think it's so inspiring to be around those people because to hear the way they think and, and to talk, listen to them. And that's why it's been so fun to listen to their stories and write their stories because, you know, I do these interviews and I hire my daughter to type in the interviews before I write it. Well, I'm paying her to type these in, right? Paying her a good wage. But more than that, I want her to hear those stories, right? Because she's in her early 20s and and uh, just starting off, and, and uh, she can't help but grow from hearing those stories and how those people have overcome such obstacles and they're, how they stay positive and, you know, how they never lose faith and how they've struggled and they just they refuse to give up. And so that's what I think our society as a whole has lost in a long time because of this, you know, tax the rich, eat the rich, all that Wall Street movement that, that went down. It, it just it annoys me so much that people who not working – want to take the money from the people who have done so successful by by working. And so that's one of the problems I see in society today. And that's one of the things that I love trying to do these books to educate students. These, these books are geared towards students. And my goal is for somebody to read that book, a student to read that book, a parent to see that book in you know the bookstore, to buy it for their graduation uh, present for their their son or daughter, and I tell every person that I approach about being in these books, my I have my own kids in mind when I'm writing it, and I never ever ever want my kids to feel any source source of 
entitlement, right? And I always tell them, you repeat this after me. If it is to be, it's up to me. No one owes you anything. Now, you can get that degree from Texas A&M, and that's fantastic. And that ring will open some doors. But it's what you do afterwards, how hard you work, how creative you can be, how you save, how you sacrifice, you know, those type of things that are going to make you success or they're going to, are going to keep you struggling because you do not, you're not owed anything by anybody. You just have to go do it yourself. And it's just asking, is it? We're we're about we're about done. So I, I want to ask before we leave. Yeah, I, I think I think you and you think you ended it kind of the way already, but a, a, some sort of I think anybody, the point of this podcast is that people can learn from right. They want mm-hmm. somebody to tune in and then get something out of this and get some sort of like even if it's just a little golden nugget, right? And so we're gonna end off the podcast with whatever golden nugget you want to leave us with. Well, I think that's it. I mean, um, if it is to be, it's up to me. I mean, I think that's the most important thing that anybody in business can go into. I mean, aside from my faith in Christ and my family, um, you know, the most important thing to me is to be able to provide for my family. And you can't do that unless you're motivated to continue to do something more. Um, You know, I... I do these books on the side. Um, it's not my full-time job, um, but it's allowed me um, to create more opportunities to pay for my kids to get through college and those type of things. So I'm no nowhere near as successful financially as the people I'm writing about. But, you know, I'm doing my part, I feel like, to uh, honor God by sharing these stories and hopefully motivating some young people to go be all they can be. And um, hopefully my own kids get this out of there. You know, I've, I've said, you know, in the Sam Houston book, same way. It's like uh, one of the stories in there, um, it's a local guy who owned all the McDonald's here at one time, very, very successful. And his, he's telling me his story, and he's originally from Pennsylvania. And his dad was a con artist. So they would move around over and over and over again um, because these people in these different communities figure out the con and his family would move out to the next place. Well, he's telling me the story. He's had like got a bunch of siblings and my dad was uh, such a con artist that he you know lost money and you know just miserable childhood. He sold two of my sisters to like, cover losses sold them like whoa yeah exactly right so what i know his goal his whole goal was as soon as he graduated from high school was to get away from his father so he joins the air force and he's becomes a pilot and one of the guys he's flying around asking him he's like hey you ever thought about going to college he's like yeah but I, i wouldn't know the first thing about where to go so well, I went to Sam Houston State, and if you want to go to Sam Houston State, I'll help you get in there. And so his name's Ron Blatchley, um, unbelievably successful uh, story. He uh, went from basically this guy with no parental upbringing to he served on the Board of Regents of Sam Houston. 
he works for A&M. He's an entrepreneur. He, you know, he had all of McDonald's and, and Brown College Station. And it's all about, it's not where you're from that's about. It's where you're going. And um, because, I mean, he could have blamed his father and done nothing and been bitter. We saw this and he's like, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to be a successful business person. I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to be a role model for my family. And because of that, because dad was also an alcoholic, Ron's never drank alcohol. And so it just, it's like, you can go one way or another. And so by promoting these stories, I hope to inspire anybody. Because I always tell people, you know, I'm not sure every one of these stories is going to, you know, relate to your son or daughter, but they may find that nugget in this stuff, you know, because part of the, the formula for the book is what led them to that school, what they learned, how they got into business, the biggest obstacle they overcame, and then their advice to young people. And so that's been the formula for these books. And, you know, I, it's been fun for me and hopefully we've inspired some people. Love y'all. Thank you. All right. A good that was fantastic. All right, man. I what you're doing is what I, I think what you have done is what I want to continue to do. Like She's good with this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I want this podcast to make Thank you for listening to the Ben Navarro's podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes.